welcome to this very special staff event, COVID-19, what we know now. Before I begin, I would firstly like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional custodians of the land where we are gathering today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Uh, it is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built and it is such a privilege to be here. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So welcome to Sydney Ideas. It's really good to be here. Hello, my name is Fenella Kernabone. I am the recently, very recently, appointed uh, Head of Programming for Sydney Ideas. And it is a great pleasure to be here at the university and to chair today's third COVID-19 all-staff panel. And of course, importantly, to bring together our, our, our panel of academic expert speakers so before I introduce our guests, big picture themes that we're going to be covering over the next hour are mental health, the opening of borders and quarantines, vaccines, how to stay well and protect others, and so much more. And I'm very excited um, to welcome our speakers. Professor Julie Leesk is joining us online on Zoom. She is a social scientist in the Susan Wakil School of Nursing and Midwifery and a visiting fellow at the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance. Welcome to you, Julie, and good to have you here online. Line. Also joining me on my left is Professor Ron, Ramon Chabon, uh, Murray Bashir Institute for Infectious Diseases and Biosecurity at the Faculty of Medicine and Health. Professor Daniel Sorrell is the director of the Marie Bashir Institute for Infectious Diseases and Biosecurity. And also all the way over there is Professor Marie Thiessen, who is the director of the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Abuse. Uh, the title of today's panel is COVID-19, What We Know Now. As I said, the last panel was held in July on Zoom. 12 months ago, a bit further than that, there was one in March, of course, as well. So maybe we could begin with each of you with a brief overview of where we are at in Australia. So some thoughts from you on, on what has shifted in our understanding of the virus or what hasn't, and maybe what has changed from last July that we might be still a little bit unclear on. Um, Julie, let's start with you uh, from your home office. Good to see you. Hi, everyone. And sorry I couldn't be there. Uh, got a mild respiratory tract infection, so I have to walk the talk and <laughs> stay away from others. Happy to hear it. So, so give us your understanding of, of what might have shifted uh, in your view of our understanding of COVID-19, where we are at now. In July, the prospect of vaccines was there. There were trials happening, but we had no idea that we'd have a vaccine program um, being rolled out as soon as we've had. So that's really a miracle in many ways and the result of huge efforts of many different people. We were at the time, I think there were, we were having big debates about uh, mandatory masks. We we're having debates about um, apps, I think. So it just shows you how, you know, things move on and, and how the landscape changes. There's a lot of things that are different now. I think we're realising also that COVID is with us to stay for a reasonably long time, if not forever. Um, and that may have been something we weren't quite as aware of or many of us weren't uh, at the time. So there are quite a few changes, but, of course, some things also stay the same. Certainly. Thank you. Um, Marie, what's your thoughts? How have things changed, particularly when it comes to our mental health? Yeah. Um, and wow, it's such an opportunity to reflect back. And, you know, you wish you had the vision looking forward when you were talking about it a year ago. And even though with mental health a year ago, um, the big thing was fear. 
Um, we had incredible fear and anxiety around this virus. We didn't know what was going to happen. And that fear um, drove us to do incredible things. Um, the fear also led us, I think, as a society to better appreciate that our health is made up of our physical health and our mental health. So really having uh, a passion about that mental health. What I didn't know and what I think we all underestimated was how big an impact this pandemic and the mental health consequences um, would be for young Australians, for those adolescents and for those young Australians. You know, it's the time when you're forming the most amazing bonds. Think about when your uh, fabulous relationships happened with your best friends. They were often in those age groups mm. and we completely disrupted that. So Absolutely. Thank you. Um, Tanya, your thoughts? So I'd like to pick up on your comment about fear, Mari, because at the time we knew very little about the virus. So why wouldn't we be afraid? We knew little about the immune response to the virus and whether or not it would be protective either from natural infection or in the event of a vaccine being made. And what has happened over the last several months is that we've learned a lot more about the virus. We've learned that like any other coronavirus, that is one that causes SARS or MERS and now COVID, these viruses mutate quite quickly. But in fact, they haven't really changed all that dramatically in their impact. Uh, by that, I mean there are some strains that seem to be perhaps a little bit more transmissible. They don't really seem to cause enormously more severe disease. And we're understanding now that vaccines are becoming available, that we can actually handle that to some extent with the vaccines. Absolutely. And Ramon, what's, what's changed or shifted in your view? If I pick up on my colleagues' comments uh, and to pick up on this notion of uncertainty, if I look back to March and July, uh, we survived the first, second and subsequent waves of infection in this country and indeed globally. And if I reflect um, on all of that time, I take great comfort in the fact that the things that we've done all along are the things that we know keep us safe. It's the basic measures that we do day in and day out at university, at the soccer, on the bus, if we're shopping out and about, hand hygiene, physical distancing, if we're not well, staying at home, getting a test. Those are the things that have worked extraordinarily well to keep us safe in this country. And together with vaccination, those are the things that we must continue on into the future. So would you agree that if we're thinking about, so we have some five themes that we're going through today, that in terms of Australia's management of COVID compared to other countries, that there is a positive, we can think about this in a positive way. How would you think about that idea? Unquestionably. So of course, you know, the events certainly in Victoria are, uh, are quite devastating. But if we think about countries where there is wholesale unbridled infection rampant through communities, we've done a lot of work in this country to keep ourselves safe. And that's been no, not been by any accident. It's taken all of us um, active measures day in and day out to keep ourselves safe, and that's the things that we need to, you know, to keep forward. Mm. And Marie, what's your what's your thoughts on this on on how Australia's management of COVID compared with other countries, particularly when it does come to our mental health, uh, compares? How are we doing? Yeah, I, again, I think it comes around to for me the fact that COVID. Australians have been incredible at understanding the impact of this on their health, but also the impact of this on their mental health. So we really have tried to work um, hard at doing things that keep us healthy, both mentally and physically. Uh, but I do think we've still got a fair bit to do 
um, you know, I think of it sometimes in terms of a bit of a shadow pandemic that we need to be responding to, that we've got the pandemic, but the shadow pandemic are all those mental health consequences that we've experienced. The and things that we forget about that we don't look after ourselves yeah. or we don't notice in others. So yes, yeah, we don't notice in others. So right. it's keeping, making sure we keep on doing that. That's picking up on Ramon's theme of making sure we spend time, maybe we don't look at the news every day, maybe it's not the first thing that we look at so that we give ourselves a little break. How yeah. do you not look at the news every morning? Yeah, well, maybe not the first thing you look at when you get up. Practice. I got to say. Yeah, practice. So, Mario, those things really something like vaccinating yourself in terms of mental health. Yeah, yeah. By adopting some yeah, practices. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a theme or a concept that we've been thinking through, Tanya, that, you know, for yourselves, you've been talking about the physical, the vaccine, the injection. Mm. I'm a bit interested in whether we also as a country need to start thinking about a social vaccine. So definitely not an injection, <laughs> um, but the, the perhaps thinking about what it would mean for us to build back better socially. Mm. Let's build on these incredible strengths that we've mm. built as fighting this vaccine and then build back better socially caring for each other. Okay. We're going to touch on mental health in a bit more detail in just a moment. But one of the first themes, as I said, is Australia's management of COVID compared to other countries. Julie, there is a question, I think, for you here. Uh, Why and how is Australia lagging so far behind developed nations with regard to the vaccine rollout? What's your take on this question from one of our staff members? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. Although, I, you know, in some ways, I'd quite like to reframe it and say, why aren't vaccines going to the countries that really need it right now? Because they've got massive outbreaks. So, you know, that's a, a kind of global citizenship angle. But we have, of course, had some hiccups with our own vaccination program, as everybody knows, if you do look at that news every day. And uh, there's a few things there. There's the fact that we've had uh, a limited supply of the vaccine, um, the vaccines in general. Uh, And of course, we had those blockages from Europe where they weren't going to ship vaccine to us just yet because they needed vaccine more. Um, And then so we had that initial delay. Um, We've also had uh, a safety issue with the AstraZeneca vaccine such that the Pfizer vaccine is preferred for the under 50s. Um, Doesn't mean you can't get it, the AstraZeneca, if you're under 50. It just means the Pfizer is preferred. And yet we don't have a lot of supply over Pfizer. Um, That supply will come in throughout the year in a steady flow. That means we've got a supply issue. And finally, we have had real issues around um, program management uh, because we've had the usual sort of um, jurisdictional tussles around who's running which part of the vaccine program. The federal government has been running more of the vaccine program than they usually do, aged care, disability, direct to general practice. The states usually cover all of those sectors. And so we have had some issues where those jurisdictional boundaries meet, people are falling through the gaps, there's confusion and there's inertia, and we've had real issues with that as well. Um, So supply, safety and coordination have all been um, issues for us. We will get there eventually, though. Mm, More more to come, certainly. Any comments or anything to add there, Tanya or Ramon? 
No, I fully agree with what Julie said. For sure. Um, let, let's move on to mental health and we'll come back to vaccines in, in just a moment. So one of the, there's been quite a few questions, uh, Marie, that have come through in regard to uh, how COVID has affected our mental health. And you've already touched on this a little bit already, um, but let's talk about some of the positive changes as a result of COVID. Um, how has living in a pandemic changed people's sense of society, values and what matters? Yeah, I, it's building on it again that notion of um, looking out for each other and connection. And I think that we really have built that much more strongly in response to um, COVID. That doesn't mean that there are not vulnerable groups in this country. Like COVID didn't hit everyone equally. There are incredible inequalities that have happened and some of the biggest inequalities, unfortunately, for people who had existing mental health problems, found it very difficult to get care and still find it quite difficult to get the care that they need. So, um, But in terms of the positive, there's building that social cohesion. And what I really hope is that we can actually continue to build that. Um, the other one for me is that we have learned a lot more about how to be flexible and flexible in our work environment and flexible in our, in our lifestyles. And what I'm hoping is that we can continue to grow that flexibility and keep that flexibility so that um, we're, we're able to have that balance between our health, our mental health and our work. Hmm. How, how has, it, has it manifested? I mean, how have we started to become more capable of dealing with that flexibility? Because, I mean, you were talking before about anxiety versus normality. This is the world that we're living in. It's not something that we're going to pass through and then we'll be on the other side. This is the reality for us right now. So how can we start to kind of really think about that adjusting to returning to work and working from home and dealing with all of those sorts of things that you're, you're referring to? Yeah, so... Okay. And I think what you're hinting at there is, uh, you know, anxiety is there and anxiety is quite contagious. So on the one hand, as social beings, we want to be around people because that's an incredible way of keeping ourselves mentally healthy. Um, on the other hand, we want to have a little bit of control in our lives for the things that we can control because the knowledge is fantastic. It gives us an idea of what we can control. The knowledge that Ramon was talking about, about knowing, about having masks, that's something that we can control. And that can be, therefore, a way that we can make, uh, deal with the anxiety, doing things that we can control. And so for me, that work-life flexibility and balance is giving us some ability to control some things in our lives. And, and so that ends up us being healthier in the long run. Mm, for sure. There's an interesting reflection from Peter Doherty, I think over the weekend, about for academics, it's possibly easier to work from home and in a greater degree of social isolation than, say, musicians or people in the arts or mm. others. And I, mm -hmm. I just wondered if you'd like to expand on that slightly. Yeah, um, I think definitely um, I agree. It's going to be a balance because for some that isn't possible. Um, uh, therefore, that produces um, a challenge. But this isn't the only thing that you can have that you can have some control over in your life. It just happens to be one of them, you know. Yeah. For sure. Um, and what, one of the questions, I suppose, is how can we support the mental health of others who are living overseas? But what if we broaden that out? How can we support others with their mental health, regardless of where they're working or living? What's your thoughts on that, Marie? Yeah, there, there are really um, two or three simple things that we can do that we need to practice all the time. Um, one of them, uh, as I said, is um, realising and understanding the impact this has on your mental health, the increase in anxiety or the 
increase in um, the feelings of helplessness that you can feel and therefore giving yourself a break when you can. Like, as I said, not picking up your phone or looking at the news, the first thing that you do in the morning. Um, we can. Uh, second thing is that we can use the things we know that help our mental health, like taking a walk, like exercise. These are all very simple things we can do. Mm. The third thing, and I think, you, you know, if we're talking about, is asking and, and asking people how they're feeling. So keeping that connection um, is in doing it in a safe way, um, but keeping that connection with each other, that social connection. So I'm really, really keen for us to talk about it as physical distancing, not social distancing. Oh, I love that. Thank you yep. for that. Thank you. Can, so I, much. can I just Absolutely. add something there? <laughs> yes. Can I add something there? Um, I, I actually, last year I worked here in this home office most of the year. And, um, you know, it's kind of, as people know, it's it's not easy if you're, particularly if you're a bit of an extrovert, to be stuck in a home office the whole year, not interacting with people much, maybe except your family. And so when I came to the university, I came to an office in the university on campus from the start of the year. And I found that was really good for my mental health because it was getting out of the house, getting the exercise, commuting, having a kind of normal routine, putting a, a boundary between um, home life and work life. And also just having those corridor conversations with a few people that are around has been really just, um, I guess, you know, it's given me a, a real sort, sort of greater sense of vibrancy and a, a sense of there's a bit of life around. Hmm. So it's about finding the right mix, Julie. That's kind of what you're getting to. Maybe, Ramon, have you found the right mix in your in your work-life balance? Yeah, at the well, uh, uh, fortunately or not, I suppose, I'm one of those essential workers, so I <laughs> never worked at home at all. Um, and many of my colleagues are in the same boat. And what's interesting is that for many of my colleagues, um, we were quite afraid of having to go to work and, have, you know, have to manage patients and deal with those risks. Mm. And yet... Uh, yet, yet as I said earlier, um, wherever we are, at work, at play, shopping, at, you know, the same measures that I adopt in the clinical setting are the same measures that I adopt largely if I'm out shopping. So it's that consistency and it's that rehearsal and practice of, uh, of actively keeping ourselves safe with the simple measures and hygiene and, and all the rest of it is what really does matter ultimately. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Thank you. These are all really great, very important things to consider because, I mean, just for myself, I've been working from home like everybody else has for the last 12 months and even starting here at the university has been a godsend because I get to come to an office three days a week and see human beings again as opposed to looking at people on Zoom. So it's it's good to be here. Uh, so we're going to talk about the theme of vaccines and where we are at in Australia in more detail. So I know, Julie, you've mentioned this before, but one of the questions that's come through is, uh, is this one. Are Pfizer and AstraZeneca's vaccines comparable in their ability to prevent acquiring and spreading COVID-19? Yeah, so this is a shifting landscape and we'll, we're learning more as we go because we've had these phase three trials which have tested the vaccines in smaller populations. Now we're having these so-called real-world studies and we're getting different kinds of data in. So there's no single story here. Um, but against severe disease, both the Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccine, which are the main ones in Australia right now, well, are the only ones for the time being, 
are um, are very comparable. They're very effective um, against severe COVID, i.e. going to hospital and dying from COVID-19. Now, we don't have as much, we've got quite a lot of data on the Pfizer vaccine because you can give those two doses within three weeks and start to look at the effect of two doses in studies over time. With AstraZeneca vaccine, you give the doses three months apart, ideally, and that means that we've only got um, data on a single dose of AstraZeneca vaccine, but we're looking for the single dose of AstraZeneca between 61% and 88% effectiveness, depending on whether you're looking at uh, symptomatic infection or severe disease. And for Pfizer, you're looking at 87 to 97% effectiveness. That's after two doses, right? So we don't have the data on two doses from AZ yet. Um, And then there's questions about variants. It will depend on the variant. Um, You know, this is a whole talk in and of itself. But essentially, these vaccines are working quite well, particularly against severe disease. They're important to have, and they're also um, reducing transmission Of course, they're not as good at reducing transmission as reducing severe disease, but there is still an effect. And that's why we still need to think about when we have a vaccine, we're not just protecting ourselves from severe disease in particular, we're also helping to protect, helping to protect other people from getting the disease too, because there is some reduction of transmission. Okay, Tanya? And you may wish to to reflect on why they reduce transmission. And really, I think the primary effect is that there is a reduced viral load in the people who are actually infected, uh, so that logically, and particularly if you do some of the things Ramon was referring to, then transmission will be reduced. And there is quite good evidence that that's the case. Probably the best estimate is of the order of by 50%, but they may, that may be overestimating it. I think the data are still coming in on that. Okay. Um, a question that has also come through is, will COVID-19 vaccinations be a yearly thing? And do you think that in the future people will have the option of choosing which vaccination they receive? So Pfizer versus AstraZeneca. Um, Tanya, maybe this is one for you. I think it is likely that boosters will be required if we look at the other coronaviruses and indeed other respiratory viruses, uh, immunity does wane with time. And we would certainly expect that to happen with this one. Studies are ongoing in that context, but we do know simply measuring some of the antibody responses, which are really a surrogate for the overall immune response, which is much broader than just an antibody response, that they do wane with time. So we would expect that to be the case, whether it's strictly 12 monthly or on a slightly different regime, I guess we need to find out. For sure. Will it become as simple as going and getting a flu shot that, you know, we'll get it from the chemist? How is it going to work? Like, how is it going to play out in our lives in the future? Um, Who wants to talk to that, Ramon, maybe? Wow, crystal ball. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here for that. That's me. Yeah, look, I I think to follow on what Tanya has said, I think in simple terms, probably yes. So we can expect there's a need to maintain our immunity over time, whether it's yearly or 18 monthly, that's yet to be determined. But it's certainly here to stay. Okay. Um, What about this question here, which is future mutations of the virus likely more dangerous or not? Does widespread vaccination drive the virus to mutate more or more quickly? 
Uh, the answer is that vaccination would not be expected to make the virus mutate more quickly. The virus is already mutating in the background, actually quite rapidly, but most of those mutations are meaningless from the point of view of severity of disease or transmission. It's only the few, as we've observed with the so-called variants of concern, where we've actually noted that to be, if you like, clinically or functionally significant. So no, the vaccine will not drive further mutations. Got it. Understood. Um, a, a big question, of course, is about hesitancy. What about for our colleagues who may be vaccine hesitant? Um, perhaps framing what it means to be hesitant about the vaccine might be really useful to start with. Um, Julie, what's your, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, it, it is like it's a definitional issue. Um, hesitancy is a motivational state of being conflicted about vaccination. So it's not a behaviour and it's not the only reason that people may end up not vaccinating because there are access issues as well. And we can't forget those. The social determinants of vaccination are important as well. But putting those aside, then there are people who are, um, there's different kinds of hesitancy around the COVID-19 vaccine. So there's people who think they probably won't get it at all. Um, then there are people who are AstraZeneca hesitant because they're worried about these, um, this rare but serious clotting syndrome and they don't want to take that risk. Then, and so they may be waiting for the Pfizer vaccine for their age group. Then there are people who are very much on the fence. They want to wait and see. They're just not sure about the vaccines at all in general, mm -hmm. um, but they're probably open to eventually vaccinating. And they're, they're the kind of people where a bit of a lever, like an incentive or a nudge from your, your colleagues might make a bit of a difference. And then there are those who are really willing to vaccinate and they're going to do it. And that's about 65%, depending on your survey. So, in fact, most people are saying, yes, I'm going to have a COVID vaccine. Okay, which is good. I've had my first shot, by the way, just last week, which I'm quite happy about. So, you know, I think when it comes to talking to colleagues about vaccine hesitancy, just simply talking about it is possibly a really a really good way of, you know, uh, having that kind of conversation. What about from a mental health perspective, Marie, those that are, that are hesitant? For example, a lot of people that I know that are in that cusp age group, 50, 51, 52, are at the present time very nervous in my anecdotally amongst people that I know about getting the AstraZeneca because they're in that age group. So how to, how to have those conversations that we need to have to help people through to, to, to help them to the next step? Yeah, and I, Julie just um, covered off so beautifully the myriad of reasons why people might be feeling, you know, hesitant at that level. Um, so there's not going to be one solution. I really like and, and would want to pick up on what you said, which is talking. Um, this, the other important part of it is actually getting accurate information. And there is a lot of information out there and a lot of information shared. So if you are talking, that's great. And I, we will really need to do that, but we also need to have the accurate information floating around. And it is incredibly hard to talk about risk. Um, it, it's a very complex concept for humans to talk about. So really, as much as we can, getting the best and accurate information is the way to go. Mm. Understanding what it means to have a very infinitesimal, very small risk around the um, 
one vaccine versus another. So, and I've had my shot too, by the way. I've had mine as well. (laughs) I had Astra. (laughs) So last week I had my AstraZeneca vaccine and and I, I wanted to make sure, like we ended up putting that on SBS News because having people you know or people you trust around vaccination seeing them being vaccinated or having them encourage you to be vaccinated in a respectful way is quite powerful. So if you're concerned about colleagues who are vaccine hesitant, hear them out, validate them and their concern for their health, um, help them access good information and then encourage them to be vaccinated if you're comfortable to do so without having an argument, without having a debate, because that can actually backfire and make things worse. And just keep the conversation going um, and realise that sometimes you're never going to be able to convince somebody to vaccinate. So you've really got to be clear on who you're talking to and what your conversational goals are going to be in that situation. And I think overall also, um, and uh, I know that vaccination, it affects all of us, what we do affects each other but also having a respect for people's autonomy I think is important as yep. well. Mm. So one, one, sorry, one thing that we talk about is like decisional balance. What are some of the, you know, good things? What are the, some of the not so good things about, you know, moving forward with this decision and letting people um, talk about them themselves? Mm. Um, one thing I just wanted to add with that, Julie, you know, talking about yourself being on SBS you know, we're talking to the university community here and the university community has access to the best knowledge in the world at Sydney Uni. So I actually think it's part of our responsibility as a great public institution to get out there and to encourage and and lead the positive things in this space. So encourage and lead, you know, um, talking to each other, talking to our friends. We've got incredible networks. So if we could do that, just that would be fantastic. And I think one of the really important things that Julie has mentioned is um, these vaccines, the information is changing pretty quickly and there is a, a tsunami of information out there. For the most part, much of it is actually either you know poorly reported or actually hard to find. And I spend much of my time helping folks trying to find the right information at the right time. So in these conversations having with your friends and your um, peers, suggests, you know, some really useful places to go and find the right information out as opposed to Facebook or the news <laughs> or elsewhere because much of that is where misinformation or um, hesitancy can become uh, much more problematic. How do we find that information? So we don't go to Facebook, we don't go to Twitter, we, we go to the right source. As Marie said, we have the best research in the world right here at the university. That's fantastic. So, I mean, what would be some very simple techniques that people could do to find that information, to get the correct data for themselves to share as opposed to the usual suspects, Ramon? Well, I go to the reliable sources, so the, the state health department and the federal health departments are the places to go, mm. um, not on you know, other kinds of sources of information. And some of that information is quite difficult to, to digest. And if, and if that's the case, uh, find friends and and openly talk about that stuff. So mm. it really is, as Marie has said, um, avoiding uh, information sources that are seemingly <clears throat> interesting but perhaps unhelpful to our anxiety levels. Yeah. 
and looking for um, uh, truth sources. Mm, yeah. Sure. Let's talk about side effects. I know we're talking about vaccines right now. We're going to move on to what happens when the borders open and some how we can all do better and feel well as well towards the end of our conversation. Um, but there is a question on side effects. So he, here it is. Um, and Ramon, I think maybe this is one for you. Um, we all heard uh, that there are severe side effects. How do we prepare ourselves to get COVID vaccines? What is understood about adverse reactions to the AZ vaccine? My own experience was so debilitating for 24 hours that I, I definitely feel I should be, I should have been much better informed about the possibility of this occurring. Yes, I think it comes to back to, as Julie has said, understanding where to get information from. Um, trust the sources of information. I include your health professional, your GP, your, your nurse, or whoever it happens to be. But to also take the time to read about that mm. stuff. We, we know that when we have vaccinations or immunizations, for the most part, we expect there to be a reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and vaccines are like like every other medicine. There are risks of side effects. So it's about ultimately um, informing ourselves of those risks, taking the time to digest that information, ask questions, and to be prepared to understand what that looks like. I'm going to have a sore arm for 24 hours. I'm going to have a fever. That's how these medicines ultimately are designed to work. Another question mm-hmm. that's come through is which vaccines long-term effects are still unknown? Is that something that you can answer? Well, I think the safest answer really is we don't know about any of them because yeah. <laughs> they've just only started. And so we're gathering data about the effects of the vaccines on not only transmissibility of infection and also how well it can prevent severe disease, but we're following these kinds of effects over time. So remember, this has been a and is a pandemic. Happened very quickly. Uh, in less than three months, it became a global outbreak. And so lots of information, lots of data to be gathered over a long period of time. And Julie might like to comment on this too, but Australia has a very effective mechanism for recording side effects of vaccines. Julie, you've been involved with that through the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance. I don't know if you'd like to comment briefly. Yeah, um, it, and in fact, just to pick up on that, the initial question was someone who'd had a horrible, um, you know, systemic reaction. Sorry to hear that. It's no fun. Um, these vaccines are a bit more what we call reactogenic and about 50% or so of people will get um, tiredness, uh, you know, a bit of a chill and, and a few things we call systemic reactions. So, uh, it's a thing and it's worth being aware of. And I'm not sure that the consent processes are so proactive at letting people know you've got to kind of go digging about that. But but go and have a look online, as Ramon said, the government information is good. But um, what they're doing is that this, the, the National Centre for Immunisation Research and others are um, collecting data through Ausvac Safety Um, from people so that you get a a message three days, I think five days, and then 42 days after each vaccine to ask you what kind of um, um, things have happened to you, whether you've had to go to hospital, for example. That's designed to detect adverse events following immunisation and particularly to detect rare things which might not have come up in the trials so that if you do see what we call a signal, a little blip in the rate of an adverse event, they can then investigate that more. And, in fact, the systems overseas that were doing that found this um, rare clotting disorder, which is expected to affect between one and two per 100,000 
um, thrombos thrombosis with thrombocytopenia uh, syndrome after the AstraZeneca vaccine. So it is rare um, and most people will go to hospital, be treated appropriately, the sooner the better, and they'll recover. But we have had a couple of deaths. And so that is um, concerning some people. And I guess what we do then is ask people to think about these are risks that we take in everyday life with medicine, surgery, other things uh, for the benefits as well. Um, and those benefits are important to people as well. And many people are overcoming that concern about risk, me included, and going ahead and um, having the vaccine for those benefits. But yes, we do care about vaccine safety and um, the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance, which is actually affiliated with UCID, where I worked for 12 years, is looking carefully into all of these things, along with the TGA and other partners in other um, capital cities. So our understanding is growing and growing as we continue on, Ramon. And that's why it's really very important, as Julia's outlined, to do those surveys. Mm -hmm. That data does matter if we don't report these events, however minor they may feel or be, we just don't have that information. So we would encourage you strongly to fill out those surveys when they do come through because that is what really matters in terms of understanding where the risks might actually materialise. So don't just close the email down and, and say, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Open the survey. Yes? Got Absolutely. it. Global oh. citizens. What was that? Be good global citizens. Be good citizens. global citizens, I understand. <laughs> well, talking about global citizens, maybe we can move on to the concept of the fact that I wouldn't mind going and travelling overseas, but I can't at the moment. But it's not all about me, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else here want to go overseas? We, all, we want to travel, right? So at the present time, we're not allowed to. Uh, we're not able to. Um, so a couple of questions here. I might start with this one. Why isn't vaccination compulsory how is it a right to put yourself and others at risk by remaining unvaccinated? And that might lead into our border question as well. Julie, maybe I could um, start with you with that provocation. Yeah, thanks, Vanilla. That's a great question as well and not an easy one because um, there are many different ways to get high vaccination rates. And yet we know that that protection when you're sitting on a plane, um, the protection at the border is so important to keeping good control of COVID-19. So um, having what we call, you know, a mandatory vaccination, essentially where you require vaccination for certain activities, goods, services, and if you're not vaccinated, there is a consequence you miss out, um, for example, um, is a, an ethically um, challenging topic. And it's one that thinkers at this university have been thinking about for some time. Um, and, and really we... We do want high vaccination rates and probably at least 80% to get good disease control. Um, but we're going to have to have all those other measures at least to some degree in place for the time being. And so it's about what's proportionate. So, for example, in healthcare, where you've got a risk of someone transmitting a virus to others um, and you know that the vaccine can help reduce that risk of transmission, it may be appropriate to require vaccination of healthcare workers as we do for other vaccines, for example, in New South Wales, um, so that we protect patients. And uh, for example, I think in some jurisdictions they've required vaccination for the quarantine and border workers. Um, those kinds of requirements are proportionate. The ethically thorny issues come when you're saying to go to the pub, you have to have a vaccine. Because the fact is, whether we like it or not, there are going to be a decent proportion of Australians right now, it's 15%, I'm sure it will reduce, 
but there will be a good group of people who won't have the vaccine no matter what. So what do you do about them? And that will require good policy thought that takes into account the epidemiological issues, the legitimacy of such a policy, the justification, and whether it's right in that setting. And that's something that we need a whole lot of thinkers to be thinking about. We just can't mandate vaccines unthinkingly. You talked uh, about the borders, which is obviously the the key question in terms of travel. And there are a number of different things to think about, really, uh, and why we would do it. Uh, It's not actually a new concept in that we've, for many years, had to have yellow fever vaccine if we go to certain countries. And that's really to protect ourselves in that country because that particular infection is mosquito-borne disease. So it's not really going to be transmitted back here unless uh, a relevant mosquito that could become a reservoir in this country happens to bite you while you've got the virus in your blood. So there are the exit kind of strategies that might require immunisation. And then there's the, is that going to help incoming? In other words, returning from overseas, uh, if you've been to a country that might be really an epidemic and uh, overwhelming infected country. There are issues that are to do with uh, something you raised the other day, actually, Ramon, which uh, the insurance industry mm-hmm. and whether or not there are going to be imperatives from them. There are issues about who is going to make this decision. Is it going to be the government that's going to mandate it or is it going to be the airlines that are going to mandate it? So although we all find it a really appealing concept, I think it's important to be aware of all these slightly conflicting issues that need to be resolved before a straight answer can actually be given. Mm, For sure. A question, I suppose, that touches on quarantine. At the present time, people go into hotel quarantine on the the whole. Um, So to talk to that, what will be required to open the borders again and what requirements do we anticipate having in place? And will we have self-quarantine at home? Is that something that uh, that we can look to? Yeah, I think it's important, as we've seen with history, recent history, um, there won't be a time where the borders are open wholesale. Um, There'll be bubbles that will be arranged with certain countries, with countries where the infection is uh, well under control, where there are high rates of vaccination, and it's going to operate fairly dynamically. So, and that's going to be around for quite some time. In fact, many, many, many years to come. But what we do know is that the more that we can do to increase our vaccination rates and to make sure that our activities around gathering and movement are well exercised to get on top of outbreaks that do and will occur, that's what will give the confidence in the system to open more borders. In other words, there will be more outbreaks to come. Mm. We should expect them. Uh, and we are well rehearsed in outbreak management, certainly in this country. But there is more to come um, as we do open borders with certain countries. And um, it's those basic measures which I go on about quite frequently. <laughs> um, what is it? Washing our hands. Washing our hands, physical distancing. If we're unwell, stay home, get tested. Yep. Those are the same things that get, that get dialed out with every outbreak um, that will get on top of the outbreaks as they occur. And the same, yes, Tanya? And I think you made it clear there's no sort of one size fits all. Mm. <laughs> and certainly if people are returning, even if vaccinated from a country where infection is rife, then a form of quarantine is going to be required. Where that actually occurs, I, I guess, is yet to be determined, but home quarantine is a likely possibility because, as we've said, vaccination doesn't fully protect you. What it does fully do 
is protect, protect you from death and very severe disease, and it reduces that opportunity for transmission. So again, it's going to be a little bit of horses for courses. I look forward to meeting those horses. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> and managing our anxiety, of course, as well throughout that process, Marie. Um, I suppose we're coming towards the, the sort of the final sort of quarter of, of our conversation uh, about what we know about about COVID. And again, it's great to have everybody who's watching uh, wherever you happen to be today. Um, I suppose the final but one is really we've touched on a lot of this already, but it's how to stay well and protect yourself and to protect others. So it's a really good way to kind of wrap up this big conversation. Um, and you you actually talked about this just just then. Is the chances of another SARS COVID outbreak in the short to medium future? There is more to come. So what really are we <laughs> looking ahead at having in our lives? Well, we, we're in simple terms, we're looking at there'll be future outbreaks um, th that occur. Um, and so we have to make those processes, if you like, kind of our friend <laughs> in a strange way um, to expect them um, uh, and to know what to do when they occur. So, you know, one thing I do daily is to, is to know where the case numbers are and where they occur. And if, in fact, I happen to be in that, in that area, I adopt my behaviours accordingly. So coming to expect more outbreaks to come in the future, that's a pretty important um, uh, place to be. And then to understand how we can protect, you know, protect ourselves physically, emotionally, mental health-wise to manage them into the future. Okay. Tanya? I think it is important to be aware of this virus follows the route of every other virus uh, outbreak that we've had is that it will tend to become less virulent or less severe with time, whether it will reduce to the um, effect of being like the common cold. It's certainly an analogy that people are making. But it, it, if <laughs> to give a virus a personality, it's not actually in the virus's interest to kill everybody off. <laughs> and so these mutations and adaptations usually tend to make these viruses less virulent uh, rather than more virulent, which was one of the questions that was mm. asked earlier on. Actually, the question is exactly that. In 20 years' time, will COVID-19 be similar to the common cold? Will it still be a circulating virus that we manage for a few days with tissue and a Panadol? <laughs> will it? I would like it to be. And hand um, hygiene. And hand hygiene. I'm, down, I'm, I'm okay with that. But, it, this is, this is, but in reality, this is actually what it potentially could become like. That is the... the, the uh, previously documented sequence of events with this type of virus. Uh, SARS was different in that it was completely eliminated. But with coronaviruses and the common cold, as you probably know, is a coronavirus of a different family from this one. Is there anything, another question is really, it'd be great to hear about how the virus mutates and what this might mean for the future. So you probably already touched on that a little bit, but is there anything that's out there that we may not be familiar with or we, we aren't sure yet? No, I think it's to understand that this is a so-called RNA virus, a certain kind of genetic code virus, which mutates very frequently. All RNA viruses, of which there are many that cause respiratory infections, not just coronaviruses, mutate quickly. And it's the, the mutations that affect the functionality of the virus are the ones that we're actually concerned about. Okay. Um, perhaps another question that's come through for you, Tanya, is are there any new findings with regard to the transmission of the newer strains during aerosol generating procedures within a, within a dental or medical setting? No, not that I'm aware of. Okay. Very good. And what about other professions such as dentistry, some of the most contagious professions? How can they stay, you know, protect themselves and look into the future? That's another question, Ramon. Well, we have well-exercised measures to protect healthcare workers who undertake these kinds of procedures, and they're the things that we've done to date. So it's really a case of 
um, keeping calm and carrying on with the same kinds of interventions. Um, as I'm sure you've heard, and we've talked about this in the past, personal protective equipment is in fact the last line of defence um, to preventing disease uh, spread. So uh, it's all it's all about the processes that come beforehand, including, of course, but not but not not limited to vaccination. Mm. What are the long health, sort of long-term health effects that are emerging as a consequence of becoming ill with COVID-19? Perhaps we can talk a little bit about that. Um, Marie, what are, your, what are your, some of your thoughts on this? Yeah, look, we've been, of course, incredibly lucky in this country that we haven't had um, an extraordinary number of cases that are COVID positive. Um, but that said, there are still um, close on uh, 20,000 cases. Um, I think actually there might just slightly be more. Um, across up, yeah. the country, 20, Almost 30,000. 30, yeah. thank yeah. you, Ramon. Yeah. <laughs> See, get the correct information. So <laughs> 20,000 in, 20, <laughs> in Victoria, I think. Yep. Yes, about 5,000 in New South Wales and then smattering around the country. So uh, what surprises me is actually where those cases have occurred <laughs> in the population distribution. You know, they occur across the population age distribution mm. from um, very young through to very old, but the biggest group was in that middle, that 20 to 60 years of age. Okay, so that's sort of framing it. Then what are the consequences? That so far, the best evidence we've got from the very small studies in Australia are about 80% of people are not experiencing very many long-term. So there is a really... Uh, cohort of about 20%, one in five, who get what we're calling or starting to call long COVID. Mm. And that is characterised by fatigue. It's characterised by increased rates of anxiety and depression, stigma around having had it, PTSD. So, you know, we really do need to understand that group. It's going to take all of us, as Julie said, to come together to understand. It's a multi-system problem and it's going to have, for those, at least one in five multi-system consequences. Ramon's done some great work following people up in hospital, seeing those sorts of out, outcomes for people. Um, and I think that's where, you know, we were trying to bring things together and it's a nice little flow over for me. I'm like in my mid-50s, I can see the calmness. I can see the fact that maybe I'm going to have to live my life in this way. It's a lot tougher saying to that to someone who's 20. And for them, you know, the next 10 years, that feels like a lifetime so I do think it is really important that we work out ways to work, particularly with young people, because this virus has really impacted them and their mental health. And we were already on a really not a great trajectory. So, you know, more young people die from suicide in this country than they do by motor vehicle accidents. So we were already on a bad trajectory and we just lumped COVID on top of it. And it's really incumbent upon us to do something about that. So it needs to be at front of mind, front of uh, the future thinking of everything that we're doing. Yes, what you're and saying. they need to be part of that decision-making, mm. not just those of us in our mid-50s. Not just the afterthought, Tanya? And there are some risk factors where, where, whereby people are more likely to develop these longer-term side effects. Uh, they include underlying chronic diseases, people who have respiratory diseases, for example, or chronic cardiovascular disease or diabetes may actually become evident post-COVID, presumably due to an effect on insulin production. Uh, we are really trying to follow all of those abnormalities and there are neurological abnormalities, there are sleep abnormalities, mm -hmm. many things yep. that really overlap with what you've been talking about, 
Marie, uh, we're still trying to understand how long these actually last. Of that 20%, a significant proportion will be better within three months, but that's a long period of time, mm. uh, particularly for a young person. 20, yeah. And, and so it, it's a complex uh, set of disorders and it can predominantly affect one body system rather than another. Uh, renal disease is another thing that I should mention. Uh, so it is important and multidisciplinary clinics are being set up to try and actually follow and manage all of these different long-term effects. Certainly. Um, we're almost at the end of our hour, but there was one question, Tanya, that you said, ask me this at the end. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to briefly ask you this and we'll see if we can get through this one pretty quickly. Um, Australia's strategies for preparedness for the future for respiratory outbreaks, we've sort of talked a bit about this already, but are there going to be opportunities to develop an Australian Centre for Disease Control? Your thoughts on this, Tanya? So we already have really very good strategies for preparedness, which, as you know, are based around a federation but with linkages into a central Commonwealth body. And that's actually served us very well. When people think of a CDC, they tend to think of the American CDC, which is a single building in which a lot of information is collected centrally. And I might say in this pandemic, it's actually not demonstrated itself to be wonderfully effective because there's this huge country, America, and actually getting things into centrally is a major problem. Uh, there is a second model, which is a European-style CDC, which is more of a federated model, which is what we have at the moment. That is not to say what we have is perfect. Of course, there is a lot of, if you like, argy-bargy between jurisdictions. But if we can bring together uh, the data, which is so important, to be centralised and analysed and contributed to by the, uh, by the jurisdiction centrally, then I think that form of CDC is obviously something that we need to promote and to actually move forward with. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. I suppose just to briefly finish, if I could ask each of you to tell us, uh, we started off with something positive. So I wanted to finish with something positive. So um, a final kind of takeaway or thought or something that you would hope that we would all get out from this conversation, what we know now. So, Julius, to, to hear your final thoughts. You often feel like Doctor Who when thinking, you humans are amazing. Look what we've done. We've controlled this <laughs> disease so well. We can actually run vaccination programs well also. Um, but, you know, we, we have, we've done a lot through the solidarity and cooperation and the alignment between expertise and government um, and politicians that, you know, we if we could see that happen with things like the vaccine program and even climate change, wouldn't that be excellent too? Look at what we can do. <laughs> Marie? Same theme. <laughs> we demonstrated an amazing ability to look out for each other and care for each other and, um, you know, JobKeeper, all of those um, uh, economic um, things that we put in place to look out for each other. Are there ways that we can build on that and continue to strengthen looking and, and looking out for each other? That'd be my main thing. Mm. Tanya? Look, I'd like to say that we're really lucky to live in New South Wales in yeah. the context of this pandemic. <laughs> True. I think the performance of the collaborations between government, between the health sector and between the academic sector have been remarkable. 
And in many ways, I think we have led the way and have influenced uh, Commonwealth uh, as well as other states following us, particularly in terms of the public health response. Certainly. Ramon? And finally, I think it's important to remember that every outbreak starts with one case, one person. And we've demonstrated in this country certainly how we can get on top of outbreaks. And so it's it's the reminder that what we do out, you know, with our hands and with our physical distancing, that really does matter. Absolutely. Well, on that note, it has been delightful to, to know that I can get my information from these uh, amazing expert professors and panellists. And, of course, that we all can too. Once again, thank you for all your questions that you've uh, uh, sent through for our Sydney Ideas panel, uh, COVID-19, What We Know Now. And I would like to thank uh, Professor Julie Leesk, Professor Ramon Chaban, and Professor Tanya Sorrell and Professor Marie Thiessen for sharing their insights with us. Uh, I deeply appreciate it and I, I know we all do too. So a big round of applause. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.